Welcome to Spark, Careers in Agribusiness, where we meet the most accomplished leaders in agribusiness today. Learn how each of the women and men featured has built leadership into their life's work and what advice they have for young people just beginning their careers. Your host for Spark is Sarah Stever, president at Paulson. Welcome to this episode of Spark, and today you're going to be meeting Linda Rader, principal at Radson Company. Radson partners with companies on their strategic marketing to drive profitability by focusing on the real-world application of economics and pricing and marketing tactics. Prior to starting her own business, Linda has worked, and this is kind of unusual, worked in both the crop production side and the animal health side of agriculture, spanning both very large global corporations and smaller entrepreneurial companies. And Linda's also got a great background in working internationally, and so we are very, very fortunate today to get a chance to meet Linda. What's a typical day in your life right now in your career? And then we'll look backwards at where you've been. Well, I would say a typical day in my life right now is primarily working with my different clients. I've got clients in several different areas, actually one right now in farm equipment, another in animal health pharmaceutical equipment. A lot of that discussion is around strategy and pricing and market size determination. So it's primarily more on the strategic side. So strategic business planning with them, not necessarily marketing per se, but more along the lines of their business operations. Right. And a lot of the work I do focuses on pricing. Behavioral economics has really opened up a whole new area with regards to how we think about pricing and how we approach our pricing. And that's something that I think a lot of businesses are only beginning to incorporate in their view of how they should approach the market and extract value. Are you talking to something that's more like a psychological aspect of how pricing affects people? It really is. There's a lot of work that shows that when you give reference pricing within your pricing schedule, that you actually influence the end result and the final price that someone chooses. There are numerous examples, particularly in the web business where there are subscriptions. If you notice, often when you go on a website and there's three different options, a you know basic, a pro, and a plus, the way they set the differential between that basic pro and plus option can psychologically influence where the final consumer makes their choice. So it becomes very important to analyze and test those pricing points. Wow, that is fascinating. <laughs> I had no idea that that's how that, that actually came together. So you're really specific in how you uh, step in and help these companies. Share with us kind of your background and how you got to that point because that must have been an interesting path. So maybe even look back on your early life for us and, and we'll work our way towards where you are now. I have a little bit of an unusual background in that my undergraduate degree was in international economics. And I was particularly interested in microeconomics. I went on and got my uh, MBA at the University of Chicago, where I concentrated in both marketing and finance, which are two disciplines that people don't normally see as going together. I have a very analytical focus, which in today's marketing world is exactly what you need. Marketing today is more and more about big data particularly with what we have available to us through websites and Internet traffic. So I have gravitated to that through the combination of my economics background and my marketing finance disciplines. So even 
prior to where you attended school, did you grow up on a farm? Or how did you kind of end up steered towards agriculture? It was one of those things that you never expect life to lead you there. My grandfather was a farmer, but he died before I had any opportunity to really have any memory of his working on the farm or even being on the farm. My mother talked about growing up on the farm, but I had no exposure. So I never expected it to end up in agriculture. What happened was I went to work out of graduate school with a company that was a large conglomerate, and they actually had two opportunities for me. One was on the human pharmaceutical side, and one was on the agriculture side. And at the time that they made me that uh, those offers, the agricultural business was getting ready to introduce a very exciting line of products. And I took that opportunity because it sounded the most challenging and the one that would allow me to get closest to the business uh, as quickly as possible. So that ended up determining my career. I ended up in agriculture with that one choice. It's interesting that you would take the most challenging path instead of the least challenging path. Is that just your personality? Why did you make that decision? I love innovation and novelty, and I love I love the idea of forging new paths. And I saw that opportunity there, and that was really why I went there. It's sort of something I've always been attracted to. I love the novel and the new and solving complex problems. Okay, so let's go back then to to that opportunity, because it sounds like that was kind of a juncture point for you that, that was a, a turning point, essentially, that led to where you are right now. Can you kind of describe how, you know, after that decision, where your path took you? Well, I was very fortunate uh, when I took that position that I was working for a man who I think many people would recognize as uh, one of the most influential people in the agricultural industry uh, over the last few decades. And he was, it was Bill Griffith at, at American Cyanamid. And Bill was one of the most inspiring leaders I certainly have ever come across. But he also was a fantastic teacher with regards to how to manage people. Watching him manage and lead are some of the most important lessons that I got in growing my career. He showed the importance of allowing talented people that work for you to surprise you with their ingenuity in execution and in problem resolution. That's probably been one of the most important secrets I've ever learned. So were you working directly with him? Yes, I was. Wow, what a great opportunity. So maybe describe your path there in your career at American Cyanamid. It was very exciting because shortly after I started working with Bill Griffith, he decided to launch what was called the AgriCenter concept. And basically what Cyanamid did in conjunction with the launch of a revolutionary group of chemistries was we cut out our distributor and began selling directly to the the retail dealers. This was not something that had ever been done in the industry. There were plenty of people that simply thought it couldn't be done, and it was a Herculean task. It just about brought the company to our knees, but it was just the most incredibly exciting opportunity to launch something that novel and new and be on the ground floor. So at the same time we were putting this new line of chemicals into the market, we were also completely redoing the distribution chain. It was successful but challenging. You know, I've heard of a lot of people that worked at American Cyanamid, but I did not know that piece of history of it. So that's really fascinating. So what was your role there specifically? And maybe talk about what you what you learned from Bill and how that grew 
you as a person? I guess my my title at first was strategic planning manager. And when Bill came up with this idea to revolutionize the distribution channel, he chose me and one other person to basically lead that initiative. And we sort of split the duties. Uh, Jim Thrift worked on sort of the external voice of that project and its positioning in the marketplace, and I worked on the internal side of it, figuring out how to make it actually work and run. It wasn't exactly the smoothest ride, but we got it done, and it drove incredible market share penetration for the for the products that Cyanamid had. We ended up with around 60% share. During the course of that time that I was with Cyanamid, I moved from that strategy position over into uh, operations, into customer service and logistics because of the difficulties we were having executing the distribution model. I went from there back into marketing and led the sector and the pursuit lines. From there, I went into the sales organization and was a regional sales director. So that was sort of the course of my uh, career with Cyanamid. I finally left Cyanamid after its acquisition by American Home Products and subsequently DASF, and went into some entrepreneurial things before I ended up in animal health. That's really, really interesting. So during all those junctures when you had dramatic shifts from where you were at, how did you perceive all those opportunities within American Cyanamid? I really was very excited about them. Cyanamid had an unusual approach, I think, in developing people. At least it seems unusual today because I haven't seen it. But what they viewed was... To really become a good manager, you needed exposure to all the different parts of the organization that were required to successfully serve a customer. And so that meant that they moved people through a wide variety of areas. They saw nothing of taking a salesperson and putting them in operations or taking a marketing person and putting them in manufacturing. It certainly calls, calls for a steep learning curve every single time but it also dramatically improved the communications within the organization because you learned what it was like to work in that, to walk in that other person's shoes. Therefore, as you developed and made decisions within your particular area, it made you think about what impact will this have on manufacturing, what impact will this have on operations, and work better with your counterparts to assure a successful execution. So I thought it was a brilliant strategy, and, you know, that was the career path I took, and it was, in my opinion, one of the uh, most rewarding parts of my career. I'm guessing that that took a really specific kind of person to feel comfortable moving, you know, in and out of those roles that were maybe not necessarily ones you were comfortable with. You have to really like the new. Uh, The other thing is I think you really have to listen hard because it's all about learning fast. So all those experiences that you had sound like they were probably a pretty great foundation for that next step, which was you described it as some entrepreneurial activities. Can you maybe describe what that was like? Well, I went into the whole dot-com era, and I worked with a Internet startup, which, again, was working to revolutionize the distribution of agricultural products. The name of the business was XSAG.com. They survived the whole dot-com demolition, so I'm very proud to say that they did have a good business model, although like all good uh, small companies, they learned to morph 
and change along the way in order to, to fit the opportunities. The idea behind Excess was an auction platform where producers could and growers could go to identify the best pricing opportunities for the inputs that they needed around the country. So it was everything that, you know, a small startup is, particularly one with external funding, you know, very fast-paced, uh, a bit of a roller coaster as far as events going your way and then not, and it was it was really exciting. So how long were you at, at that point, and was that kind of what you learned through the pricing of that auction system, did that kind of influence where you are right now with what you're doing in your niche? Well, it did. I was with XS for a little over a year, and then I moved over to another small privately held company, which was actually managing data. It was a data and analysis company for a lot of the crop companies. What I discovered through that process was that I very much like working in small organizations with small teams. The speed that you can make decisions and move forward it is simply greater in a smaller organization. Now, having worked in both environments, I can say there's also big pluses to big companies because they have resources and knowledge bases that you know you're not going to find in a large company, which is probably why I keep jumping back and forth between big companies and little ones. Because <laughs> like, you see both sides of it, and you enjoy both working on both sides of it. <laughs> That's right. So from that data company, then, where did your path take you? I ended up going to work for Mary Howe, which is in the animal health space, and I, I began leading one of the preeminent brands in the animal health space, which is HeartGuard. It's an animal health preventive for dogs. I took over the brand when I think people had decided that it was pretty much done for, that it really didn't have a future. And I went in and looked at it and said, no, it really does. There's a lot going for it still here. And put it on a different path. And it's still probably the leading heartworm preventer in the U.S. today, which is amazing. It's about a 30-year-old product now, and it's been off patent for 15 years, which in the pharmaceutical arena is unheard of. Can you kind of describe that other path you put it on? How did you turn that around? What's, what's interesting about HeartGuard is that it's made of real beef. And one thing about dogs is they like beef. <laughs> <laughs> So what happens with the product is that the dog reacts just extremely favorably to it, so it's easy for the pet owner to give. No pet owner likes to have a fight with their dog when they're trying to give them a medication that is life-saving to them and that has to be administered once a month, no matter what. So what I focused on was the emotional component of that relationship between the, the product, the dog, and the human. That in conjunction with some of the other properties of the product, which are other parasites that it, it, that it controls, were the two factors that I sort of refocused on. I also gave the sales organization some new tools. One of the big problems with a product when it gets to be about 20 years old is the sales representative feels like, what am I going to say to this customer about this product that he hasn't already heard? You know, he's known it, used it for you know 10 to 20 years. What can I possibly say when I walk in the door to convince him to consider buying more? So I tried to give them tools, even when they were more lighthearted tools. For example, we, we partnered with Scholastic Books, and we came up with a book about taking your dog to the vet, and it was a Clifford book. I don't know if you're... Oh, I remember the those. With the children. Big yeah. red dog. The yep. bi 
big red dog. And Heart Guard is obviously a dog product, and the heart is red, and so the big red dog was a great uh, partner to have as we talked about the importance of administering heartworm prevention to your to your pet. So we had our had a little book that was written about Clifford going to the vet, and we used that as a basis uh, to really, you know, talk more to not just to the veterinarian, but to the technicians in the clinic, the receptionists, and even had tools to talk directly to the pet owner. So it kind of gave the whole product a new life and uh, another uh, another set of tools for the salesperson to use. That was so smart. So there's the little piece of psychology again. So I'm starting to see a pattern here between the data and the psychology and the pricing and how this is kind of all coming together. So where did you go after Marielle? After Marielle, I worked in uh, briefly in, in a swine genetics company before I decided that I wanted to go out on my own and start my own business. And what really drove me to that decision was the whole development in this area of behavioral economics. Because my original training was economics and my original training, particularly at the University of Chicago when I was there, they were focused very much on how man is rational and a man makes rational decisions, and that was the fundamental uh, basis of the way the markets would work. Uh, Behavioral economics has now shown pretty clearly that we're not always rational, rather we are efficient in our decision-making. That has resulted in sort of a different set of, a different framework around which to think about marketing strategies and pricing. And I was very attracted to that, so that's how I ended up with my own business. Interesting. I've never heard it described that, not rational but efficient in our decision-making process. Now that you're on your own, um, who are you able to work with, and how does it feel to be an entrepreneur again in the very – Are you? is it a small company now? Yes, it's a small company. I have one partner that works with me. He's more on the financial side. I focus in agriculture, which is a little bit of a a unique area. I mean, because that is my industry experience and taking a lot of those principles that I have studied and applying them within that area. I will say, though, that I do from time to time have clients that are outside of the agricultural arena. Having your own company is very different. I mean, you get up every day and you really have to be very structured in how you think about what has to be accomplished, particularly with an eye on your revenue requirements. Everything you do, you have to measure whether or not that is going to be a specific benefit and how can you quantify uh, what you got out of it at the end of that day. Because I've just started doing this really only about the last year and a half, I'm still learning. Uh, and I've learned to reach out to a lot of people that have kind of gone down the path ahead of me, and I've gotten some good tips from from those people as far as you know how to evaluate what's really going to pay off in the long term. It's a lot of fun. I love the flexibility. I love the variety. And the thrill of owning your own business. So can you maybe describe either mentoring you've done, or it sounds like you're even to this day still having people that are mentoring you in terms of being an entrepreneur. As far as the mentoring I've done, it's one of the areas where I felt like I've really seen an incredible reward. Early on in my career, I had the opportunity to learn that in spades because I had a woman that worked for me as my assistant, She was a mother of two children. She was divorced and was really struggling to support herself. And I really saw that she was very bright 
and I told her what she needed to do was go and take a couple of accounting courses and learn to run Excel extremely well. And she went and she did that, but I lost touch with her. And then a few years later, very surprisingly, it was about 10 years after that conversation, she sent me a letter and she told me, she wanted to thank me for my telling her that, she, that I knew she could accomplish that because as a result, she had been able to triple her salary using the skills that she learned as a result of that effort. It, it was the most incredible letter. I was just overwhelmed by it. What a reward to get that feedback, and it really has caused me to want to do everything I can that as young people come through to teach them as much as, as I know and help them build their career going forward. Well, that's a really powerful story and a great segue to, to what is your advice for young young people coming up in their careers and maybe even still in high school and still trying to decide their education path or decide their overall career path? Two pieces. First, they need to think of themselves as a product. And just like the Tide detergent, they always keep adding a new feature to it, you know, cold water Tide or new, new fresh scent. You have to think of yourself as constantly needing to have new features and benefits. You have to constantly assure that you're keeping up with the fast-paced changes that are going on in your field or your industry. And that's probably one of the most important things that they can do to keep in mind and, and continue to grow and succeed. The other thing that I would tell them is that listening is probably the single most important skill that you can have, particularly listening to customers and to salespeople that deal regularly with those customers because that's the heartbeat of the business. What they can tell you and the action you take on is probably the most important thing that you can work on. That product is really an interesting metaphor. I've never heard anybody use that before, but that is really, really true. You know, you hear people talk about being a brand, but you don't necessarily think of this idea of constantly adding new features, constantly thinking of new benefits that you can bring. Um, I can tell you as an employer, that really fits right into how we think about the people that we end up hiring. So it's a great way to kind of package yourself up. What wonderful advice. A brand's nice, and I, I agree with you. I see a lot today, particularly in the social media world, about developing your brand. But if that brand doesn't bring specific benefits to the customer, then it's nothing but a nice name. I completely agree. I love that metaphor. That's great. And listening skills, I'm constantly working on that uh, myself. Active listening is really <laughs> is a skill I think that can be learned, and that's when you have another one that you have to just work at. I've got to kind of switch up the questioning a little bit here. Within your sphere of influence now, within agriculture or within being an entrepreneur or entrepreneur, however you want to think about this, what are you most concerned about in your sphere of influence, Linda? Within my sphere of influence, I'm most concerned about the continued changes that I see particularly coming in the marketing world. The field of marketing has been revolutionized in the last 10 years with the internet and social media. That speed of change is not going to stop because of machine intelligence, because of big data. I see for the people in the marketing field, it's going to be almost a frantic pace of keeping up with what technology can bring and then figuring out how to execute it appropriately to bring benefit to their businesses and clients. I would completely agree with you. I think from my perspective, that's how it feels to me too. Um, and because you're a data person, you know, the idea of trying to find signal in the noise, because there are 
the changes are so dramatic and there are so many of them, which ones of those changes are relevant and which ones do you bring back to your clients? That has really been a, a challenge of ours. So thinking about that, the sphere of influence that you have, um, if you could change one thing in the future, one thing in your sphere, what would that be? What I would change really doesn't relate directly to marketing. It really relates more to the whole agricultural arena because one of my biggest concerns is the continued public perception issue that modern agriculture has with the general public. It's a very complex issue and very hard to address because of the emotional component that naturally is assigned to the idea of food we eat and nutrition we're taking into our bodies. But it's clear that there is a very incorrect perception of genetically modified organisms and the general science around that. I feel strongly, as I know others do, that we need that science in order to meet the requirements of the whole human race going forward for the next 20 to 30 years. But we're really struggling with making the general population comfortable with that science. I think that if there's one thing that I could, I wish I could figure out how to influence, it would be that perception, because it's so critical that we figure out that issue and are able to move forward using all the skills that we have to address those needs. I completely agree, and I I share your concern, too. Um, I worry that we will lose our scientific momentum because there is such pressure against what we know is actually working and effective. If you figure that out, Linda, you let the rest of us know because (laughs) we're all there with you, you know, wanting that same goal of, you know, just seeing a future where we are less food secure than we are now. And that's a scary thing. So when you have stepped aside from your career, and you've got a long way to go, and now that you've just started a new business, and it's a lot of fun. Obviously, we'll be doing that for quite a while, but what do you want people to remember you for or think about you? Yeah, that's a really hard question because I guess every person always dreams of making one great big contribution for which they're remembered. But careers today are such a series of vignettes rather than one long movie. People have usually now a series of roles in different companies, and that's certainly what I have seen in my career so far, and I really don't anticipate that to change. So perhaps it's better to be remembered for always leaving any place you work in a a better position than they were in when you arrived, and to make sure that you always help them move forward. I think that's probably, if you had to ask me what I want to be remembered for, that's probably it. Speaking from having worked with a lot of people myself, it is really gratifying to work with people who will jump in and do what needs to be done to fit the situation that we're all in and kind of think of themselves maybe secondarily to that effort. So my last question for you, Linda, or maybe the last couple of questions are, is there any question out there that no one ever asked you, but you have got an awesome answer for it? Yes. The question that I have an awesome answer for is, why is agriculture the absolute best field to work in in the whole world? My answer to that question is that agriculture is the only area that spans an incredible variety of disciplines and guarantees that you will never stop being challenged. In order to succeed in agriculture, you have to know science because of everything around chemistry, fertilizer, seed, 
You have to be an excellent business person and be able to understand an income statement and how to draw profit and work in a highly commoditized business. And then today, more and more, you have to be a technology expert because all the machines that are helping us succeed today are generating lots of data and are fundamentally computer-based. I don't see any other area that requires all of that area of expertise and also gives the opportunity to work in such a variety of fields. You're not going to get bored. It's always going to be something new, and that's why I see agriculture is absolutely the best field you could possibly be in. I could not agree with you more, and that is a wonderful answer and a wonderful question. <laughs> I wish I'd have thought of it. It's a great question. So then to just wrap up, Linda, is there any other advice you want to give our, our young women and men that are listening to our podcast? give agriculture consideration. It's just about never on a woman's list. I can speak to that from personal experience. My young daughter came up and she never dreamed she would actually work in agriculture and I'm happy to say that she's there now, but it was never on her list. Give it some thought. I think that they would be very rewarded by the experience. Can I ask what her career path is? She had to prove her mother wrong, of course. She (laughs) told me that she... She wanted to be an English major. I informed her that no one could feed themselves being an English major. (laughs) (laughs) And so what she did was she went out and had one job interview, got the job, and she is now working in public relations for an agricultural chemical company. Oh, that's wonderful. So thank you for your time, Linda. Um, This was a a great interview and great advice and just so fascinating to just kind of picture how your career has gone from working for these really big entities and making a difference there and then stepping out into the entrepreneurial world and making a difference there. And I love your advice about thinking about yourself as a product, always adding benefits and features. That's great, great, great advice for our audience. So thank you again. Well, I just hope that it's of some benefit. So how can our um, our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like some advice from you? Probably through my website would be the best. Um, it's www.radsoncompany.com. Well, thanks again for your time, Linda. Much appreciated. That's Spark for today. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in for the next episode. To learn more about Paulson, please visit paulson.ag. That's P-A-U-L-S-E-N dot A-G.